0: Welcome to Three Devs and a Maybe, the podcast series for beginner web developers and general web enthusiasts. Now introducing your show hosts, Michael Budd, Fraser Hart, Lewis Keynes, and Ed Mann.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Three Devs and a Maybe. My name's Ed Mann and today we're very lucky to be joined by fellow co-host Michael Budd. Hello. Hello, hello. Yeah, exactly. Hey, uh, hello. Yeah. It's all lovely. Yeah, it's Yeah, exactly. I'm Look very happy to see good. you. And nice. I'm even more happy to see or speak to you today, Stephen Proctor, or just Proctor, um, from Functional Geekery uh, Fame from the podcast. Yeah, it's good to speak to you, man. How are you doing? Doing well. How are you doing? Very good, sir. Very good. Yeah. Busy day. But then I suppose, yeah, exactly. You were saying that like you're dumb, unfortunately double put yourself today and stuff. And yeah. <laughs> We've kind of then decided, you know, put it right in the middle of the day for you because uh, you you live in Texas. I'm right in thinking Central yes. Time Zone. Yes. And uh, the weather, I'm guessing, is really nice in Texas today. Just uh...
2: actually not. It's pretty rainy because we're about. Oh wow. We're getting a bunch of that. Uh, we're getting a bunch of the weather coming up from the Gulf. So we're still uh... about five, six hours away from the Gulf, but there's Hurricane Bill or Tropical Depression Bill going on now. So we're starting to get a lot of that edge of the downpour. So we got lots of rain today, and probably tomorrow and Friday as well.
1: Sorry about this. Maybe it's you coming on our podcast that has caused it. Sorry about that. Um,
2: still <laughs> a reprieve from the 100-degree weather we'll be getting soon. <laughs> oh,
0: wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, Mickey, how's your week been, mm-hmm. sir? Uh, yeah, not too bad so far. Just uh, still working on my e-commerce projects at work. Uh, University's
1: uh, all closed down for the year now, isn't it? University's
0: is all kid. closed down, just sort of waiting for exam results. So uh, that's good. Um, they did release the remember i did that blender project yes uh so they did release the um hall of fame for that one and you Obviously, were in the hall of fame you were no, the first no, last I'm
1: ballot no no i
0: uh, was in you? the hall of shame but um <laughs> they but yeah it's pretty amazing so i'm going to try and send you some pictures maybe we can um put that in the show notes for anyone who was listening like uh quite a few episodes back i guess when i was talking about that but yeah some of them are just incredible but uh yeah no other than that uh uni is all shut down and um yeah, I'm just kind of focusing on that, that one project. Being a dad, I'm guessing, the as well,
1: is probably dad, up a lot yeah. of the
0: time. Yeah, absolutely. And um, just doing a, well, not freelancing, but doing a little side project, which I'm hoping to have you on board with. Um, absolutely, yes. But other than that, just, uh, yeah, just loving life. Well, i hoping we're... to use
1: one of the technologies that we discuss in this podcast on that said project, so yeah, there's a little, yeah, you know, kind of... Well, um,
0: maybe we can get some advice from Proctor on the project. That's so exactly it, yeah. So, yeah.
1: Um, and Proctor, how's your day going so far, other than being jam-packed?
2: It's been pretty good, Yeah, just jam-packed
1: so far, but other than that, it's been pretty smooth. Awesome. <laughs> well, again, thank you so much for coming and taking the time to come on the podcast. Um, just wondered if you could start off by giving the audience a short introduction about yourself. Okay. I started out doing .NET development about a couple of
2: years ago after growing up around software. And doing that, I kind of came into, I mean, my dad did software as well. And so I got some early exposure to XP and a bunch of these agile practices. And so I would kind of been on there and then digging in more to OO with, from just playing with .NET and getting into domain-driven design and seeing mistakes working on a code base for the same year. And more of the soft mistakes of the implications yep. we had, where, oh, this is easy. So we had, like, units of measure, and we'd need to update them from a UI. And we could either set the value or the measurement, unit of measurement, and we'd never know when things were done because we were both changing them and starting with, like, getting into domain-driven design and things like that where you talk about, like, immutable values and value objects versus domain objects and some of this strict stuff that didn't have as much logic around it. And kind of started getting that feel and things like, the command query separation where you're either modifying state or you're just creating a function. And it, some of these pieces of O kind of started to roll together. And then I kind of heard Uncle Bob and some others who were big proponents of good design start preaching things about like SICP and some of these other texts. So I started going back and finding some more about these texts and started slowly digging in more and trying to see what I can bring back. Because around that time, we started being able to pull in link. And .NET as well. And yeah. I started looking at Ruby and started seeing how some of Ruby's blocks, which were essentially closures, kind of played into the fact of that and just started seeing how there's a lot of stuff here that we can learn from. And so I started digging into Lisp and closure, and went through and tried to find a bunch of the, like, Paul Graham's on Lisp book and a couple of others and just tried to see what was there and figure out things and had been listening to podcasts for a while and had kind of always had the inkling to do one, but never quite knew what it was. And then just the more I dug in and then I kinda of got an idea and started digging into closure just in the free time. Nothing super serious, but would hit the user group in the area for closure and then got laid off from one of the jobs and picked up a job where they said, Hey, we're gonna be doing some Earling here and I was like, That sounds intriguing. I'm like, That's int- that's <laughs> intrigu that's intriguing enough that working at an ad agency could be could that that little uh, squeamishness about ad agency and selling online yep. ads seems could be squelched a little bit by getting to work with some interesting technology. Yeah, you,
1: you could kind of yeah. pass over that and maybe, yeah, got an interest.
2: So I started picking up some Erlang more and started looking around and seeing a bunch of the ideas. And at that point we had, well, because of the Erlang, I started the Erlang user group in the area as well, just to be able to get more experience with it and figure if we're, figure out if we were the only people really doing it in the area or not. And then if so, build a community around it. But around the same time as well, we had a little one and there was probably, she was probably five or six months old. And it was one of those middle of the night things. Wife had, wife got up and fed her and then she was still wasn't falling asleep and still fussy and stuff. So it was my turn to, walk her around downstairs and keep her calm. So my wife you get know this, Becky,
1: don't you? <laughs> oh, yeah, I can relate, yeah. You can relate to this now, yeah.
2: yeah. And, and it was one of those, I had the idea, like it was probably an hour of a walk and about 45 minutes into just walking laps downstairs at 2 a.m. I kind of <laughs> thought, maybe it, since I'm digging into a closure, I've been digging into closure and some Erlang and like Haskell's always been on the radar or something that like I've heard will break your mind. I was like, maybe I can do a <laughs> podcast. About functional programming, and it kind of all started to click. And I was like, "Functional geekery." I was like, "I'm kind of geeking out on functionals, functional programming, and kind of going deep and trying to get people." And I was like, "That sounds that sounds like it might work." But I realized this is like almost 3 a.m. in the morning. Completely exhausted. Yeah. so I didn't, no, well. I'm
1: exhausted. Yeah, I've got the lack of sleep. Maybe this idea is just something I'm kind of thinking of it now, but then actually putting it into practice maybe a little harder.
2: Yeah, I'm like, is this sen- is this nonsensical or not? So that was exactly it. I was like, let me sleep on it for two nights and see if it still holds some. If it still holds water in the next couple of days, or if it's just one of those things, completely crazy. And the more I did it, the more I got excited about it, and I started figuring out what could I do to get this done on the cheap, and said. Went and told my wife, "It's like I got an idea for a podcast." And she to...
1: says, "You're crazy."
2: <laughs> well, she was like, "What?" She didn't quite get it, but so I, I was doing some explanations of kind of what it is and how it is, and I was like, and I said, "Could I get a hundred dollars?" This could be a complete and utter failure, but like, could we say hundred dollars for an
1: experiment, and which was and I, and covered... keep me It'll keep me entertained for a couple of weeks, and you.
2: <laughs> yeah, and it was essentially completely. I was like, essentially covered the cost of mostly covered the cost of hosting. I already had a cheap headset, USB headset with microphone, but so it was like domain name hosting and the price to get Skype call recorder to be able to record Skype calls. And it's like, cause I was like, if I can get, and I knew going in, I was like, a lot of podcasts pod fade, but I was like, if I, if I get four in and pod fade, I was like, that's $25 an episode of an investment. I'm like, that's four books. And if I can talk with an author of four books,
1: I'm like, to me, that's a win.
2: That return That's on investment is, there. That, is
1: yeah. Yeah, that that really does pay for itself, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I've never yeah. heard of the term pod fan.
2: Yeah, I've heard I've heard it thrown out with uh like you get one or two or three episodes in, you start getting some steam and then all of a sudden it's like four or five yeah. and six start really the driving car. on and it's like are they ever more? Because people realize <laughs> people don't really much effort it actually takes to put one together and do it on a regular basis as well
1: yeah i mean for them it's only like the well i mean i know this from you know you, you assume like it's just 40 minutes you know of us talking and that's it um you know it's we had adam adam Watham on last episode and we, he's also a fellow podcaster and you know he was saying you know these audio it takes up to three to four hours to edit it can get quite insane, like the prep work you have to do, getting the guests on. I'm not sure you've had that exactly. You know, trying to email people to see if they want to come on the show, arranging it, or finding a good time for both of you that works, or yeah. So it's a lot of work, but it definitely pays off. And I do like the way you kind of said, you know, that 100 bucks and 25 bucks an episode. If I get four in, is worth it. And then I mean, now you're up to what is it 19? I think it is now. Is it I published 21,
2: oh. I think. And Have you got any, on,
1: any in the pipeline?
2: And I've been working on editing some one because I went to Lambda Comp and Ooh. I managed to pull out old microphone I found in a recycle bin at work that apparently still works. <laughs> That's of, always great. Because some marketing, like, I'm assuming some marketing person had this microphone, used it, and then got managed to sell their way up to a to a nicer microphone. But this one is a nice USB microphone that works well. That's what I'm talking on now. But essentially, put that on the table and said, "Hey, anybody like." I'd love to get a couple of people on and essentially do a gonna kind of working on a montage episode with about I think I got about eight to ten different people doing five or ten minutes.
1: Oh wow, so, that does sound a lot of work. So it'll yeah,
2: it'll be just kind of a what what did you do at LambdaConf? What was your presentation about? What did you find interesting? So that sounds fun. That's that's what I'm working on now, and then I've got a whole backlog of people I that are dream guests if I could
1: actually. That, that figure out exactly, how to exit yeah I mean your first guest though was Uncle Bob, yeah. so I mean that's wow. pretty amazing. I mean that's just amazing, yeah. you know I mean, did you just email him and ask, or did you kind of know him beforehand or
2: I got to meet him up in in Chicago at one of the software Craftsmanship North America conferences uh, like two years or, t- or I think it was uh it was like 2011 and 2012 or 2011 and 2013, so yeah. I managed to go up there. I think it was back to back. I think it was 2011 and 2012. And we managed to sit by him on the bus and just talk to him. And he was very personable. And so I emailed That's him back awesome. after a while. I'm like, it's been a couple of years. I don't know if you remember me, but I talked to you. I'm starting a podcast. And part of this was your inspiration of like taking, taking control of your career where he's kind of like, if you don't like your organization, change your organization Yep, or change your organization. So it's like, this is part of me being proactive. And I know you've been pushing closure a lot and looking into what that provides. So and he, and he responded, yeah. And so that one was, ple- I, like, I've been pleasantly surprised with the number of people. I think I've had two people who say, sorry, that's a no for me. And it's more, I'm super busy right now. That's, and- that's
1: exactly it, yeah. I can't fit it into my schedule.
2: Yeah. And it wasn't necessarily a no. And it was, I got yeses. And a lot of people said, yes, I'll do it. And I was really pleasantly surprised with, because I, people, I was getting yeses from, like, Focus and a number of other people without even having an episode published. And I was like, wow. the fact that I can get some of these people and they're saying yes has just been amazing. But the one that really surprised me was the ease of which I got Simon Peyton Jones on.
1: That to yeah, talk well, Haskell. that, and that was, was amazing.
2: So I'd love to be able to dig into more Haskell and get a better idea and then go back and get him at some point. But that's another couple of years down the line at least. But just the amount of willingness people are, say, are to say, yes, I'll come on and talk to you. Because as I, I heard Adam's episode of your podcast as well, and I was like, like if I were to just call you up and say, hey, you want to Skype chat with me? You're like, "That's
1: exactly." Yeah.
2: <laughs> you're crazy. Like, why would I spend my time doing yeah, this? Well, I'm like, that's exactly yeah, I say, one-on-one. I'm re- it's
1: a bit awkward. It's a bit weird.
2: But I'm going to record this and put it out as an episode of a podcast. So count me in.
1: I'd <laughs> love to. <laughs> that's exactly Yeah, Exactly. It's just like, oh, I have a podcast. And they're like, okay, then, yeah. And it's just great. And you really do, as you say, you get... I mean, yeah, you're talking to, like, like today, you know, us getting to talk to you. You get to talk to these great people. And yeah, just by the back, behind the kind of serrated of a podcast, we actually get great conversations for free. It's awesome. <laughs> and that
2: was the other reason that kind of made the podcast interesting to me when I was thinking about it was just being able to have these conversations. Cause I, I don't really go to too many conferences. And I've always enjoyed, when I do manage to swing them, I've always enjoyed some of the a hallway tracks so of in between the talks or, the after hours where you can just kind of like go up and talk to someone and get some interesting stuff and like there's so many interesting people out there doing so many different interesting things it's like can we have one of those conversations you just share it with the world
1: that is it exactly and you just put it out there and anyone that likes it that you know it's great it, it really is and and like throughout that you know what you're saying was um i suppose to rewind foot like completely you said that your dad actually got uh got well, probably got you into programming as he was a programmer back when you were younger yeah um what, what what type of languages did you start out learning then? Like, what did, did your dad like put you in front of a computer with C or something or Basic, Q Basic or?
2: So he worked at TI, and then I double checked with them last night. I'm like, what were we like? What was I'm like? I because we built computers too. So we'd build like 8080s. 80, 80, we were building computers back in the eighty eighty six and two eighty six days and everything because we had a sidewalk. There was in Dallas. There was a. For, First and first Saturday and a third Saturday. One was like downtown, and one was in a another like area in the basement sale of this big old building. And so you'd, there'd be all these vendors just selling like, here's a video card, or here's some memory, and here's some CPU, here's the motherboard, and you just like go buy what you needed. And so we'd kind of continually upgrade products. But he kind of brought. Home, I kind. Of, I remember working on, and I had to check. He's like, I think it was an Apple Atom, and so
1: oh.
2: <laughs> it was way back again. He. He had it. He was working at Texas Instruments, and he was messing around with stuff in his day job, and he brought it home, and I was lucky to be around it. And then there were some books about, like, I still got it in the bookshelf. It's, like, basic programs for, like, financial calculations of interest and everything as well, and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, okay, what's your mortgage look like? Or what is like, what's your mortgage payments look like? And all those calculations, just the simple basic programs you type in and follow along. And so there's a lot of that. There was a lot of command line stuff because it was, you're running just basic DOS machines at that point, booting off the floppy and all that stuff. So when you need to do something, you'd get into whatever you need to do. And then it kind of got into, with his work at TI, he actually worked with a Microsoft sales rep, Kind of along the lines, and we managed to get a whole bunch of versions of beta software, of like Windows beta and Visual Ooh. Basic beta and stuff when it was coming out. So we were able to look. So it was I was playing with some VB back when it was in beta because he managed to get the beta stuff.
1: That must have been so cool.
2: And it was it was one of those overwhelmings because it's like I went from this, which is like complete stuff you put in input, and it's like okay, well, how do you keep? And it was at, just at a young age, it was like, and so my dad and the and the Microsoft sales rep good like he came over for dinner a couple of times and it was just like, he'd come in when he was in town and I was like, Oh, let's load up VB and we'll show you how to hook up a calculator and like we'll drag and drop the buttons on and hook up events. So you store the state when you do that. So kind of grew up around that and then picked up and in, got into Java and did Pascal in school and some basic in oh, school yes. and just in high school, had a little bit of logo in middle school. So kind of just luckily in the area we grew up in the middle schools and high schools, we had, Programming courses too, but those were pretty much, I was blowing through the classes just because I had that previous experience. And with that, one of the, the, there was a computer math class, which was more basic stuff. Essentially, the teacher kicked me out of a room and (laughs) she's like, she's like, you know what you're doing? She had another, she had another room. And so she just let me go and sit in the other room and do whatever.
1: Oh, great. There you go.
2: And part of that was we managed to design because she, she actually was in charge of the high school's website as well, and so she's like, "You don't, you don't need to know this stuff." You like, essentially, she you gave help me, us out. You can do ga- something. for Yeah, us she there. gave me a pass <laughs> and said, "Do you want to be part of doing the website and building the HTML website for the our school page because we don't we've never had one, so we were putting together just a basic HTML website for our school and doing a little bit of styles and. Slightly, ever so slightly, CSS at that point because it was just now, it was just then coming out and very cutting edge, and we were working all of the, on all of that stuff as well. So that was fun and interesting as well. And at the because at the same time, I'm like, okay, here's my Java book, like the Deedle and Deedle, Deedle Java book, and then whatever else I managed to get my hands on. I was like, okay, she's like, you're looking at all that stuff. You don't need you don't you don't need the basic stuff. You've kind of got a grip of what you're doing, and so it was that. And like the Pascal stuff was blowing through the exercises pretty quickly and the professor and the teacher is like we need you to do this i was like i'm done he's like uh just just (laughs) keep going just keep going and there were there were two or three of us in that situation he's like just just keep going on the exercises because we
1: were like yeah, just finish the book today okay then go on you know it's meant to take all year but go on
2: (laughs) I, like I can go help people if you want, and eventually I would, just because we'd be getting so far ahead of what he was accounting for for the rest of the students. <laughs> but that was just, again, growing up
1: around it, I had been... Well, that's it, growing up and loving it, I'm guessing, from a yeah. young age, and really just kind of yeah, absorbing it so much.
2: Yeah, and that was just more that those hours of practice and play had been there, so it wasn't that I was any any better than... All of my friends and everybody else in the class. I had been exposed to everything else already.
0: I'm always really jealous whenever we have someone come on the show who was kind of immersed in programming from a very young age. Because I think it does kind of um, give you quite a good advantage. Because I think, you know, at that age, your ability to learn, strangely, is, is a lot better than when you're an adult. You're just Everything just sinks and you don't question stuff. You just literally absorb it like a sponge. And, I mean... Again, like anyone who comes on and says, "Oh yeah, they they learn basics." Like, I can't. Wait. Oh, I wish I had. To be honest, you with wait
1: till Toby. You,
0: Toby's a yeah. really scary. Absolutely, but um, I, I'm jealous, really. To be honest with you,
2: the pro- I there's a downside to that too. Though, is that you're so immersed in it because yeah. you've been doing it so long, it doesn't feel like hard work at one point. So it's like I can kind of cruise by just because you've got to be careful yeah. about like cruising by because you've got this skill. Which is a yeah, natural yeah. skill that you, but you've just developed a, so much ahead of everybody. So it's one of those realizing that as I well. To be guess. careful
0: to yeah. push yourself, I guess, and uh, yeah. and keep learning and not settle on what you know.
2: Yeah, and that's one of the things that I've I've had talks with people who are like. So you, I consider myself a fairly good programmer, but I also rate probably won't rank myself above a five on a scale of one to ten on any specific thing because I've also tried pushing myself to say, "Where on .NET? Where are you on a scale of one to 10? Honestly, I'm probably about a four or five because if a ten is Anders Helsberg the creator, or Eric Lippert, <laughs> yeah. they've they've got way they're so far ahead of me on that stuff that it's it's like an exponential scale. I'm like, yes, I'm pretty good, but I've also seen the but best. I'm not
1: that. That's exactly yeah, exactly. It's like you know, and and I suppose um, wait wait. So throughout like the '90s stuff, did you do a lot of Java and then get into .NET in in the in 2000s, or have you always been in the .NET framework really or the .NET family of languages?
2: I did. I did Java just in the 90s because it was what what was out there. It was going to change time. the world. It
1: was the language that was going to kill all languages, you know, <laughs> and that worked really well for it.
2: And the funny thing is, I was thinking about that recently as well. Was it was going to be it was going to be the thing that ran all your devices as well? It was the it was <laughs> yeah. the it was touted as the solution to the Internet of Things. Because, That's a, yeah, exactly. because Java yeah. was going to run on your toaster and it was going to be completely cross-platform. And I remember the and you little... can
1: write it once, compile once, and then run it everywhere. It's going to work. And just... they
2: ha- and they had the Java rings. I remember they had those. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how much you remember Java, but I remember going around and remembering they had the little rings with the little Java logo on it that you could wear, and it had your little Java runtime on it that could hold your little yeah. ID information <laughs> and stuff as well. So it was like
0: it's um... amazing. I just had to Google that. <laughs> no idea. It's incredible. I'm going to oh, buy I one, I think. <laughs> You're going to buy <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> And then, so then you went into .NET and, and did you stay in .NET for, uh, like C-sharp and VB. Did you do any VB.NET or was it mainly just C-sharp?
2: It was a little bit of both. So I did internships and I managed to get internships through my dad and I was able to work with a bunch of bright guys that he had worked with too and kind of had some interaction with in different groups. And, but, so that was all Java and then through one of those internships, I worked with another guy. I guess it was the between junior and senior year of college. And then he called up my dad after I graduated because I was doing attempt, kind of doing attempt stuff at his company as well because I needed some help while well, I was looking for a more permanent gig and waiting to hear back from some other companies. But he called me up and said, hey, can we steal Proctor? And like, uh-huh. like can like, my dad's like, feel free. And so like, I left that day... For an interview at noon from that job, just to go over there and do the interview and manage to work with them, and that was .NET. So that was at the point where I moved to .NET because they had been running. They had one. They had two apps that were starting to be fleshed out. It was a rest. It was a recipe suite software. So you manage all your recipes and stuff for the food service industry and how you source your ingredients and what all your ingredients are and all the specs on your ingredients. And they started that in .NET, and so they actually started it when .NET was in beta. That was also the uh, a good and bad thing as part of my career was they wrote the at that time there was the beginnings of a ORM that was hand rolled. There was a translation service that was hand rolled. There was a whole Lovely. bunch of stuff that was all hand rolled and hauled down it.
1: Bespoke and yeah, no comments and no actual user manual or guide or any reference.
2: Well, there was there was like. Hibernate was just then getting popularity in Java and, and Hibernate was still three or four years or five years later before That's we started it, yeah. kind of thing. And so it was one of those, it was great because I got to see, and I was with that group for nine years, which was great because I got to learn a lot from that and had some great mentors there. And it was just one of those things going down and digging into that. I got, a, I got, it was a great to get the experience of knowing how all that stuff works but it was also the catch of, and Hibernate's coming out, and framework's coming out, and then the caveat of going against all the other companies who are hiring that are just checklist-based that says, do you know Entity Framework or do you know n yeah,
1: yeah, That's it, yeah. Do you use this framework? Do you know this framework? No, but I know this, the actual con- concept of an ORM. Yeah. Oh, no, sorry, you don't know n hibernate version 1.235 or something. Yeah.
2: Oh. I was like, no, but I can, like, I've had to work on working on an ORM. Like, yeah, no, I've had
1: to build an RM pretty much and help maintain that. Yeah. Does, that does that count? <laughs> and
2: it was one of those hard selves, which is why I was like, I realized even more I needed to look, start looking at outside stuff because the .NET ecosystem has great languages and great tooling, but it was a very odd community because it was very, you had the alt.NET, which were a great group of people as well, but it was, there was a lot of, what does mother Microsoft say?
1: Yeah, that, that's Later. what I was, because in the podcast, the ad, I'm, I'm sure you heard in the Adam Watham podcast yesterday, not yesterday, but, you know, released um, last week, um, it was kind of the, the .NET world. Yeah, how is it then? And is it, is it very much kind of what does Microsoft say and whatever Microsoft say goes?
2: It was for the longest time. Now, because I, I keep my ear to the periphery because I'm doing a lot of Ruby now and working on some other stuff, while playing, but it was, uh, they started to open source a lot of stuff and realized that they needed more community involvement. But for the longest time, it was like, do you run this unit testing, unit testing framework or this unit testing framework? And then Microsoft came out with MS Test and people were like, oh, we got to use MS Test. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. It's no, essentially like, the, the one. official
2: one. Because yeah, yeah, Microsoft.
1: Yeah. It's like, do you use these fake ones or do you use the one that we're actually meant to? Yeah.
2: It's like, even though it's only half as featured as any of the other ones, it becomes the de facto It's got the standard. seal
1: of a, It's got the badge yeah. of Microsoft. So it must be better.
2: But yeah, so there was a lot of the .NET kind of stuff I was following a lot because they were looking out, and out and about, and seeing what other languages could bring and what other techniques could bring, and just from looking at how people were going, I knew that you essentially had to look out and build that foundation because.
1: Well, I mean, the foundation to... skills
2: are better than like knowing how to an ORM works and kind of having to go manipulate one. Will give you a whole lot more than trying to under just knowing any specific well, that's
1: Exactly, yeah, and and these t- these t- you know, these kind of concepts and the high, actual kind of yeah, the actual concepts are, are behind the you know, these implementations. It's better to understand those than understand just this implementation um you're saying because a lot of this kind of you know that you know you're in control of your own career and stuff like that. it's the very the software craftsmanship manifesto kind of thing and i'm guessing yeah, have you like read all the books and follow that quite a lot Are you, would you class yourself as a software craftsman
2: i'm mixed on it i aspire to be a software craftsman there's yeah. a lot of practices that i don't necessarily get to practice uh i don't do tdd as much as i would like part of that is dealing with legacy apps that haven't been TDD'd makes it tricky.
1: Trying to get trying to get them under test, yeah. And then, very tricky.
2: And, then just try, and then being that with one of the few people who actually say, hey, could we go TDD all the way? Whereas other people are like, oh, yeah, let's add the unit test, but we'll write them after or things like that. It kind yeah. of, there's that balance yeah. of if you're not in the right team, it makes it a lot harder, but it's one of those things to to aspire. I would love to be in a team that pair programs all day and... TDDs, everything, thing, yeah. and, But currently right now we've got like product right across the aisle from us, so anytime we have a question we just say, how is this supposed to work or does this look good or we found something here, what do you think? And you got so, the domain
1: experts. And... Yeah, or the product
2: yeah. owners at least that are driving product, that. Yeah.
1: Because you mentioned a lot about DDD and stuff. So, did you do, do well, because I mean, in the, because we were, we're predominantly in the PHP world, in our little kind of bubble here. And um, DDD's, some, you know, started to make a big impact on our world now. And I mean, that's 10 years old. I mean, 2003, wasn't it, where the Eric Evans book actually first came out? Um, were, you stud- were you studying and practicing DDD when it first came out, or are you, are you just getting into that now?
2: I was probably a couple of years after it came out. But uh, it wasn't super practicing because at a certain point it takes the whole team to practice that. Other than yeah. otherwise, you're
1: yeah, you can't preach it. You have to get yeah.
2: yeah, you can, and you can't practice it in isolation. Really, if you're working with a bunch of other teammates, you kind of got to give every, get everybody on board as to think at to certain design principles. Like, no, this this is a bounded context. We are not yeah. cru- like you are not reaching outside of this. Yeah, you cannot violate
1: this boundary context. Yeah,
2: but it's like if you don't design it right, someone else goes. "Ah, okay, let's add this here.
1: Well, that's exactly. They do a commit with which completely just violate everything. You're like, yeah, okay, well, that's completely destroyed that gun. Yeah, that boundary is now gone. Yeah. Um. Yeah, you say yeah. You need to, and and so because all these languages we've been talking about, you know, Java's, the C sharp's, they're all very imperative. And I'm just wondering because you were saying like you know that you would you know kind of you had to reach out. Of like the .NET world, and I suppose is that is that how you got your four eight uh, start into functional programming, or was there any like kind of dabbling with Lisps and stuff like that beforehand?
2: No, it was all during that .NET stuff when I was realizing a bunch of these other things that were going on around around that the out the outside world that I was starting to see, and just going back and saying, okay, let me ta- it's time to dig back in here because I s- kind of see. The way the tide is moving, I've been here for nine years and went through two acquisitions with the company, and that last one was with Oracle, oh wow, and Java
1: <laughs> well,
2: and it wasn't that it wasn't so much that it was just we were a small company inside of Oracle, and we had a lot of bright people, but it's like you're never gonna get promoted because you've got an architect, two principals, and four seniors and three juniors. And wow, yep. that's not fair to the rest of the teams because they have 100 people and have that number of architects, principals, and seniors kind of thing. So it's like you can't, you could can never really move up from senior to principal because of intergroup politics and everything's got to be even fair
1: and balanced because you can't really have one rock star group. That's it, yeah, and very vertical kind of like height structure, many levels, many yeah. layers it was just one of those we
2: and we weren't growing we weren't hiring so it wasn't really that much i knew the career progression if i waited for oracle wasn't going to happen so it was essentially i got to take control and start my learning again on my own because i'm not going to be challenged because we're not we're not the small company startup that we were before where we can make some of these changes and decide what's best for us it's now like Oh, we got to be safe. We've got these big customers now.
1: That—that's it. Yeah. Now, now you've kind of yeah. You're not. You can't switch on a dime like over the weekend. Say no. We're changing that now. That's done. It's like no. You have to go through all these politics, emails, confirmations. Yeah. You sure are signing things off and... and
2: and it wasn't so much that. It was just more with a mature product as well. It's like you can't quite pivot with a legacy code base that's nine years old as well and make some of these. See some of these problems and know that you want to do it. So, like to move from .NET two to .NET three became a big effort just because you had to make sure you're fully tested, you're fully this, you're fully that. And from three to three five and all those version bumps, there was a lot of stuff there too.
1: So, and, so at the at this time, then are you so you write predominantly Ruby now? Is that correct?
2: Yeah, right now it's Ruby. I'm kind of keeping a lot of stuff. I'm playing a lot with Erlang and stuff right now on the side as well because I run the user group and. That's a nice refreshing thing to be able to have essentially another deadline of, okay, I've got, we're small, so odds are I'm going to be presenting, if not every month, every couple of months, so force myself to figure out something and play with it as well, so.
1: That's it, yeah, exactly. You've got like a deadline to kind of, yeah, and keep keep yourself engaged. Yeah. And I mean, on your show, you do speak a lot about Erlang, and I'm just... Our audience uh, is very, so very heavily PHP based, uh, very OO based, you know, Java, C, Sharp, imperative mindset. I'm just wondering, would you mind just uh, for the audience just to explain what actually is Erlang?
2: So Erlang is a language that came out of Ericsson in the 1980s and was open sourced in the mid 1990s or late to late mid 1990s. So around 96, 98 was they started open sourcing some of their stuff, and it was designed to help them solve their software crisis which was software programmers are expensive and we've got a lot of software to build so we need to figure out a way to build our software cheaper but it was for telecom switches so they need you can't have your telecom switches go down in the middle of a phone call or be unavailable for maintenance or all run on one telecom switch you need to be able to have your calls split out multiple switches and handle failover so it gets rounded from one switch to another if it goes down or if my, if our call between us, if we were on the phone, if our call drops, we're not allowed to take down the rest of that switch, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the whole thing, goes, and then everyone else, yeah, once that crashes, the whole thing crashes. Yeah,
2: which you get with HTTP servers sometimes if you haven't picked the right framework or if you use something that's kind of core and fundamental the rest of your application is, oh, sorry, you just killed your whole application. you gotta restart your, <laughs> You got to restart your server. So it was designed with fault tolerance and distributed factors and concurrent, a bunch of things going on at the same time because it was all telecom. So it was built for highly fault tolerant distributed concurrent systems, which is very buzzword bingo nowadays, but it's network switches for telecom, which is a, looks a lot like what we're doing with, with the web now. And so that was just one of the other things that kind of get it was, and it's very interesting because it's very... OO as well while still being functional because that, these processes look, yeah. are so these processes are very small processes and they're isolated and they only communicate via their it's the actor pattern for those who are familiar with it if not it's essentially you only communicate by sending messages between two things so you have a mailbox and you just send messages to a mailbox and it's like being in a dark room and you can only go to your mailbox and you're under house arrest, and all you can do is get mail from mailbox and send mail back and do do what you can do. And so everything's completely isolated, and you send by message of passing, which goes back to the roots of OO, from my understanding, the yeah, way I mean, Al described really, yeah, it, yeah. where he equated it to all these autonomous cells doing their thing on their own and just sell- sending these chemical sequences back and forth between each other that act as messages to trigger some effect. And so it's very, it's a very functional language and it's functions are first class citizens. Just there's no looping. It's all recursion. If you want to hold state, you just got to do keep doing recursion to keep that state around, but it's very OO in the other sense of as Alan Kay described it
1: yeah because i mean that's one thing because i've been looking into erlang this month uh, starting to and I- i've had experience with a little uh, quite a bit of scala in the past in my own free time and one of the things that with functional languages is the idea of like um state obviously is a big one and mutability and iteration and stuff like that you know like the idea you remove the for and while loops and you you know you replace that with recursive you know structures and with maybe like comprehensions list comprehensions, like maps reducing and stuff like that and pattern matching and one thing with erlang i've noticed is the Heavy use of pattern action. I mean, the power of it really, to me, is kind of amazing. But it's also very strange because one of the things I've kind of looked looking at it is that you you don't have objects, do you? The the concept of objects isn't the thing, but it's just passing between different functions or different processes. Sorry.
2: Yeah, you don't really have objects like you think in Java or C Sharp or a bunch of these other object oriented languages. Your processes are your objects in your Alan Kay sense but they're not really even objects in in anything. It's just a function that runs and communicates on its own, and it just lives in its own little world. So you're just essentially... And when you get into OTP, which is the framework that builds on a lot of these practices that they found from building distributed systems, because you need to know if this process dies or not. It's like a whole bunch... Even with Inside, is like you need to know if everything's just a small little isolated process that runs on its own, you need to know whether it's still running or not. And it. if it yeah. dies, so there's, it's like this whole mini distributed system and mini network of things as well. And as part of that, there's a bunch of patterns around, like if I'm going to send this message, is this thing still around? Did this die? What happens if this dies? How do you su- supervise this thing if it dies? And what happens if there's other things that are dependent on it? What? Do, how do I restart things? And it's very much failures are expected to happen. So Let's build patterns around failures and asynchronous communication. How do we make asynchronous communication look like synchronous communication? And so it becomes the patterns there are about doing that, but there are no real concepts of objects in the system. It's just you think in pro- terms of processes, and the processes are what are the, do- what are the different concurrent activities you can do, and you break it down at level of what are the different things that are concurrent and don't have to take place at the same time
1: see and that kind of concept and kind of makes me then feel cuz it's fine, actually uh, sadly looking at like the wikipedia article on a page of erlang it comes up with the first thing is general purpose programming language and i'm just wondering would you class it as a general purpose programming language or would you class it as it, it solves a, one problem and solves it well cuz i noticed that there are things like you can host web app well you can create web applications as like chicago boss the web framework um, I'm just wondering, have you had an experience in that, or would you say it really is just a, it's a language that solves a single problem? Well, not a single problem, but a very complex problem very well.
2: I'd say it's pretty general purpose, and the fact that there are a lot of places where you can realize it can be used for most anything. There are like any general other general purpose language, it does have its weaknesses. It is not great for UI constructs. It is not something you want to build a UI app out of. Yeah, there's some basic stuff there, but it's not pretty looking. You're not going to want to do it. You're <laughs> not going to. You're not going to run it for your iOS, Android stuff. You're not building mobile devices <laughs> with mobile apps with it. But for things like servers and web servers, a bunch of that stuff is you got a bunch of requests coming in. Those are all independent. Like my request to a website has nothing to do with your request and never the two shall meet kind of thing. And that was one of the other things that kind of attracted me to functional programming was dealing in web stuff. It's like how much shared state is there and what happens when that shared state gets messed up? It's like you start getting into nightmare situations where who changed what, where did this change versus so a lot of these functional programming languages are, they, ha- they may have state, but that state is local only to an area. And it's either local to a function or local to a very small set of grouping of things. in What you get in is what you get out, and if you're gonna have that, it's not gonna be shared across some other thread with something else that's modifying it as well. So you're not having these leaks.
1: So so the idea of uh, threads, because threads as we know them, say in the Java and like the C sharp world, is you know you fire up a thread, and you know you deal with all the synchronous blocking, locking, etc. like that. And uh, in Erlang, you don't deal with that. You spawn um, processes, and it handles all that for you, and you're just passing between them using the actor model.
2: Yes. And so the processes aren't even threads or Unix processes when you hear processes. They're very cheap. They're very lightweight. They're, I think I pulled some up, just some basic ones, and they're like maybe a couple hundred bytes. So two to <laughs> five hundred bytes.
1: <laughs> that is crazy. And
2: they're, again, that's with a very minimal state, but they're just, so essentially they're green threads, essentially. And then Erlang VM has, essentially a task scheduler that knows how to allocate processes and work across those different processes and schedule them across however many cores and things you have and move them around. So it's taking care of a lot of that stuff for you. And they're just, they're very lightweight, but again, they're isolated. So if we're making, it's great for web requests and things like that because you can fire up these processes. Each web request gets its own process if something goes on in that process and it corrupts the state you can just kill that response and restart it again. because so and, it, cool. and it doesn't kill your whole, it doesn't kill anything else. So whatever I do on that thing doesn't matter. And it can go off and it can still, each process can still use other processes. So it can use processes to communicate to the database through a couple of different queries and kind of kick them all off in parallel because they don't have to return in any state and kind of say, okay, now I'm going to get some data back and I kind of wait for that state to come back asynchronously and then I can continue on and continue processing. And so a lot of that kind of gets in there of it's general purpose in the sense of once you start thinking in concurrency and that's the big place. That that's gets, what I was thinking. That, that the, gets the me The change still. in
1: mindset. Yeah. The change in mindset. Cause I'm thinking you must have to think so differently now uh, in, in using this language to, to really take advantage of it.
2: And it is, that's, that's the language itself is pretty straightforward and simple. The tooling is is getting some progress. It looks like it's going to be getting better with Rebar three and some stuff. Elixir is blowing it out of the water with their yeah. tooling for the Erlang VM. But there's a presentation. I think it was Torben Hoffman who gave it. But it's part of the Erlang Solutions, and I can put a link. I can send a link to you to throw it in the yeah. It'd be awesome. And he was essentially, how do you track? It was like the game of life in Erlang, and it was, how do you think about what are these different processes? I was like, oh, yeah, here's the, an individual cell, if you're familiar with the game of life, makes sense that it's its own process. But then it's like, well, what if that process dies? How do you play catch up and you have some coordination processes and things like that? It's like, it's teasing out all those fine details instead of just thinking, okay, well, you can kind of get the high level of like, okay, request their concurrent activities, so each request gets its on a web server gets its own thing yeah but then it gets down into the deeperness of the deeper level of what part holds what state what states isolated to what how do i handle different things and that's where the that's where the real trick kind of comes around
1: that's the learning curve right there and yeah. and with with erlang cuz uh, when you typically speak about erlang you always say erlang and otp i'm just wondering what actually is otp then
2: otp is a framework that was that's just part of Erling. The, Is it like the their standard library. library type thing? It's a little more than their standard library. It's a framework that allows you to build on top of message receiving and sending. Because you can send a message just through Martin J. Logan, one of the authors of Erling and OTP in Action. He called it naked banging on my podcast. <laughs> Essentially you say process ID, yeah. bang, and a message. And that will send it. And so, but if you send it, it's it's like me sending a letter to you. How do I know you got it? Is there anything?
1: There's no, yeah, exactly. There's no structures in place to yeah. actually acknowledge that.
2: And so OTP kind of builds all that patterns around that and says, okay, well, if you're going to build a server, there's Gen Server. So you're going to have a bunch of these patterns that you do that you're going to build for everything if you're going to write it on your own. And we're going to take all the generic stuff and put it in the gen server proper, and you're going to just implement a behavior that gives a list of callbacks that we know how to call back to. And so you implement a gen server, and you've got all the specific stuff about how you handle a synchronous message versus an asynchronous message versus starting it up versus stopping it. So you get a chance to clean up your process when it dies. So if you've created a process for a database or Redis connection or something like that, you need to close out that connection so you've got a place that In Terminate, you can say, okay, here's my cleanup stuff. What happens if I just get some other miscellaneous broadcast messages with like handle info? How do I do with Erlang running on telecom switches? You can't go, they couldn't go down for maintenance, so you had to upgrade the code. and Erlang allowed you to have two versions of your code running at the same time for any given module, which is a unit of packaging it up. It's kind of like a namespace. Uh, It's, and so it says, okay, there's a, you're, there's a way to upgrade that stuff, so if you've got state that's being passed around from call to call how do you how do you upgrade that state to the new version of the state while you're running and so it switches over and there's a whole bunch of patterns there that o t p gives you out that, of the box yeah out of the box that you don't even have to think about
1: that is pretty awesome and and another thing 'cause with because uh, with functional programming languages um uh, of course, uh, not typically. What happens is the talk of things like functors, monads, monoids, etc. Um, one thing that I've I've looked at when I, my my small, my lack of looking at a proper you know having a deep delve look into Erlang is that there doesn't seem to be much talk about that. I'm just wondering: do you need to know that monads, monoids, functors to get a real solid grasp, like stuff like in Haskell when you're playing around with the IO monad to you know write things out, or is that kind of very much handled in the language itself?
2: I don't know that you need a Get a real good grip on that because honestly, I don't have a real good grip on that, and I think it's more along the lines of if you're going with something like closure or a Lisp with Erlang's background, where a lot of those are about types and how you hide types with That's, a lot of pu- yeah. a lot of purity and hiding like things like IO and stateful side effects, which is Erlang is like, you're going to minimize your state, but you're going to be responsible for your state. So
1: I suppose, yeah, it's take it. Yeah. It's kind of embracing it and putting it in the right places instead of hiding it.
2: Yeah. And so there's a little bit of a difference where, and again, a lot of that's types. So Erlang's more of a dynamic. It's a strongly typed, but dynamically typed language. And it's only got a handful of data types, which, which you just make everything else out of. And, and you can't it, create
1: your own abstract types, can you? Because obviously you don't have the the concept of classes and stuff like that.
2: Yeah, and you, you're building your stuff out. And what you're doing is you're either using something like tag tuples where you put a an atom, which is like a symbol or a key in other languages. And you say, okay, I'm going to tag this. And then this represents, the next part is the data that represents this. And so it's just kind of putting a late, like almost a label on your on your data just so you know what it is. And then you'll pattern match against that tag type, type. So you might say user and then you've got records and stuff which build on top of it. But you might have a tuple that just says like kind of a common example is error yeah. and then the message. So you know what that you got an error and here's your message. And you may and here's have a message for it. And you may have some other details there with like error type and stuff, but you're kind of saying that when I respond to you, I'm gonna respond that I got back an error. And so you kind of have some stuff around there, but it's not really typed in that sense, but there is something called Dialyzer, which gives you progressive typing and so you yep. can kind of do annotations on what types you think you should be getting in and it'll run through everybody said it'll hurt your feelings because it, <laughs> it'll tell you how bad you've messed your stuff up, but I can see that with being like haskell or something else where you start having a very strong static type program it's like no, you're wrong. You're like you're Yeah, that's exactly of- Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah, you can't even compile the thing, you know. That's it. Yeah. You're wrong from the start.
2: Yeah. And so it it will give you things that it knows you're for sure. So it's not it won't give it. it their goal is to give you as many positives as it can, while avoiding any false positives or false. Uh,
1: that's awesome. And, so, and and one thing actually with the Erlang VM, because we say the VM or whenever at Beam, I think it's called, is that yeah. I, with me and uh, Mickey were very like used to seeing like the JVM and the CLR. Is it something similar to that? Because I know that Elixir is is compi- compiles down to run on the erlang vm is it something uh, similar way you know you, you can actually have different languages on top of the vm using and taking advantage of it
2: yeah absolutely it's the so there's erlang there's core erlang which is another language that erlang is built on top of then there's the vm which is the beam as you said and then there's a couple of different versions there's now ling which if you've seen erlang on zen that's now ling, that's what ling is but so you've got it in that sense, and that's the VM, yeah. So everything runs on that VM, and you take your Erlang code, and you especially specify your version of the runtime system and stuff when you package it up and release it. And then you've got yeah, you've got Erlang, you've got Elixir. Robert Verding, one of the co-creators of Erlang, has done LFE, which is lisp flavored Erlang. So it's giving you a, so, cool. so it's giving you a Lisp a Lisp two Lisp which is more like the common Lisp style versus the scheme style of Lisp on Erlang that you can run. He's played with and started a Earl log, which is Prologue on Erlang, which is ironic because Erlang was started That's what I saying. yeah, it's like
1: based on Prologue. <laughs> yeah.
2: And then there's I think there's a Haskell Robert Verding did a spike at a Lua Earl, so to get a Lua implementation. And so there's a bunch of different implementations you can kind of find floating around. Some of them in some of them pretty mature states like Erlang and LFE is pretty mature. And then you get some others that are kind of there and experimental and still in progress of like Earl Log, which I know he's kind of got – Robert Verding is going back and playing with some more off and on with Zach Kesson who does mostly Erlang podcast. He started checking it out. So there's like different variations. But, yeah, it's like the CLR or the JVM where you can have – different things running on it at different ways and just like the JVM or CLR there's a bunch of different variations you could probably go find a Haskell for the JVM but the yep. question is how many people are using it and how robust is it as well kind of thing or is it someone so just how many, yeah
1: how many behind it that can actually support it and stuff like that
2: but yeah you get, it's it covers that broad spectrum as well and what it gives you is that way of handling the failures and having processes and things like that
1: and and one thing very randomly but one thing that i did find out in my findings was erlang the movie is a, plays a big part and i'm just wondering um kind of do you know how it came about why it was made i mean it's very funny to watch on youtube some of the i mean the monty python sketch is pretty much you can call it that wait <laughs> that was real
0: i thought it was a comedy i thought it was like oh no no erlang the three.
1: movie does exist? Yes. I think oh,
2: okay. I think that was one of their sales stuff back in the late eighties. Oh, wow. I d- I don't know the full story of it. I <laughs> it looks like one of those marketing internal marketing movies kind of stuff. And like when Ericsson was probably right uh, open sourcing it. Now there is an Erlang the movie too, which <laughs> really, <laughs> which Garrett Smith up in Chicago as part of the Chicago Erlang user group, and he's done er- Chicago Erlang conference last year. Now he put early in Erlang the movie too, which is something completely different, complete spoof, probably not safe for work. <laughs> uh, viewer be warned. Yeah, but is yeah. definitely funny, but complete parody of the original Erlang the movie. It is oh, probably dude. the equivalent of Army of Darkness to Evil Dead, if <laughs> if such a comparison were made, and you are familiar with oh, both of those th- movies. Yeah. <laughs> I am yes,
1: oh dear. Um, and so I mean, one of the other things I'd like to, because with Ruby, Ruby is a kind of you know a high. I wouldn't say it's a hybrid language really in the strictest sense, but it does have a lot of functional kind of you know paradigms. You know, the idea of blocks, mapping, etc., like that. Um. You looking into these functional, you know, your functional exploration, kind of thinking, what do you take from your functional programming, um, le- you know, the learnings, findings, and put into your imperative languages today, like at your work and stuff like that.
2: So a lot of that is I try and take back some of these repetitive things that are think that are done, but solved in a functional way. If it's in that language, things like the maps and reduces and things like that. I put a blog post a while ago from learning closure. I was like. Why I want to never write a for loop again. Yeah,
1: Exactly. Yeah. I was like
2: there's that no same reason again again. There's no reason to do that. Let some that's spoilerplate. Let someone optimize the heck out of that and figure out how to make it inefficient. And I can just declare what I want done in a manner that's more expressive, pending you're familiar with the term what map means or reduce means. Uh the other thing I'll break I try and bring back as much is state isolation, pulling back If I can, and it's really hard in Ruby, is immutability or just whatever language I'm in. If I'm in something like C sharp for a little bit, I can say, okay, this is the immutable interface. You don't get to do it. You're going to, you're going to get something back. And it's, if you're going to change it, you're going to get a new value back. And then it may delegate to the other one because it's all immutable and there's some performance stuff around it that you could maybe do. Uh, the other one is just keep that state isolated and try and, Pull out things to more pure functions. So if the, if I'm writing a method in Ruby, there's a lot of times I'm like, can I get away? And part of this just depends on how much I think I can get away with it with other members of the team, and how much I think about it at the time, and how deeply ingrained it is. But can I pull these things out into private methods or class level methods that are really not methods anymore but functions? So they take in the exactly API. what they take in exactly what they need and operate on and they become either private or public, but they're essentially helpers that just go in and then you can just test them as functions. and that's a deterministic functions,
1: functions all the time.
2: Yeah. So it's like, if I know I'm going to get this in, I can get this out and it's easy to test. It's easy to verify what's going on. And if something else goes out around it, that's all about the outside state being different than what I thought it was going to be when I came in. And maybe there's some test cases around getting that test case. So it's more about trying to get all of that kind of under containment and take down the the determinism to what it is because it's not affected by the outside world.
1: Yeah that's really interesting and and kind of like flipping it the other way almost is what do you take from the OO world and because I mean we've had years of OO imperative side effects all this kind of what can you take from that and apply in the functional world because I remember you talking with uh, Uncle Bob about like the solid principles and I found that really interesting that you you know, you felt that you could take most of the principles and apply them in fun, you know, in a functional paradigm. And
2: I think a lot of those principles are not necessarily OO principles, but they've just been associated with OO. Because,
1: because you've been doing it for so long.
2: <laughs> yeah, and it's like you have, as I mentioned earlier, you have Bertrand Meyer's command query separation, where you either do a query, which just gets you back data, or you do a command, which operates on state. And never the two shall meet. So if you pop a stack, you get you don't actually modify. Like, when you peek, you only look at the head of the stack. You yep. keep getting the head. It doesn't matter how many times you get it. You still get that top item of the stack, which is like a peek in some
1: languages if they have it, but you don't Normally actually it's modify a it. And it's a, yeah, it's a pop, and then also returning that first element, which is just like... Wah. Yeah,
2: exactly. And you could say, okay, now pop, pop the element, and I can either return a tuple, kind of typed object, or whatever you want to call it in different languages, that's a pair, or maybe in... Or, in Ruby, an array that's the first item is the popped element and the second item is the new queue. So that existing queue doesn't go there, but it also depends on how you you manage things like that across your team and everything else. But it's trying to figure out how do I take some of these principles and say, yes, dependency injection makes sense, at least from an OO sense. And well, what does that look like in a functional sense? Well, really those are just higher order functions, right? Map map is just a dependency injection in a sense where you take in your function you want to operate on. So you're going to just inject your dependency of that function. So it's a lot about like, okay, where this, and it's something that I'm still growing in and working on is in the functional and in the object oriented is which part of this is actually functional and generic and which part of this is stuff that can be extracted out. So is my function here really as generic as it could be or do I have some implicit behavior here like newing up a class i'm setting up a function here in this function and this other function when that function could just be passed out and extracted and now you've got something like map because that's because you can build map out of any each and then you realize it's like oh well, i can actually do genericize this by letting that function be any function as, that's, long, as, yeah. I mean, as long as it takes yeah. this kind of stuff
1: and, and like and, a fold right or a fold left you can do yeah you can make any of these like reduces maps etc yeah
2: and it's just trying to figure out, it's a lot of those principles is like, get back down to the, what is this doing? Is this doing the, does this function have a single responsibility? Is this function, because the, the, sing, the singular responsibility, the more singular the responsibility that function has, the more deterministic it is about coming in and out. And then you can start to compose those together. And again, Gang of Four, beginning of Gang of Four was prefer composition <laughs> over inheritance, right? And then that was so- it. And it's like, well, functions, if you do it right, your functions can compose and you can compose one function into another and do pipelines like you have in F sharp or Elixir or closure where you can essentially take this input and either compose pipe it through in like a pipeline or take this function. And this function is really composed of these two functions that operate one after another together and build that kind of thing up as well. And so some of those patterns from object oriented still seem to apply at the function level, but you just it's just squint and you kind of say again it's the fundamental principles versus the specific implementations of those patterns
1: Yeah, absolutely and and with um you know like erlang and you you just said you you know you, you run the user group I'm just wondering how you started that i mean that must be a lot of work. Uh, adding on the fact you've obviously, I think I don't know how old your baby is now, but you're saying like you know you're thinking about the podcast. So it's 2013, I think you started the podcast. So she can't be too old. And then also you've got your day job. I, I don't know how you find the time.
2: Uh, usually the podcast slips if I find, if if it comes down to it, just because that's the one with the least hard deadline. Sadly, yeah. Hoping to remedy that. Hoping to try, starting the work to try and find some figure out some sponsorships because it'd be nice to be able to have someone help editing. Because when I heard Adam say it, he'd get it in three or four hours, I'm like, I'd love to have three or four hours. And it may just be yeah. my my level of editing is so obsessive. It takes me about eight to ten hours oh, to, wow. to do wow. a podcast. Because I try and remove all the stutters and ums and uhs and anything else in there and try and make it sound as – because I know if I'm listening and I've got someone that says, um, yeah, like, um, at like that all the time <laughs> – it's hard to get to the content, so I try and clean up my stuttering and any guests and any stuttering that the guests, or starts, that the guest may do, as well. So because it's a labor of love right now, that's one, and it's not the hard deadline; it's the one that's most likely to slip. But it also is the user group can be pretty. In, we're small people, so it's pretty informal. So there's, what would you like to see next time? Is there anything you've been playing with? And it's usually live coding, asking questions, feedback kind of stuff, all impromptu. I don't know that. Let's try that out and everybody else try. Or we pull up a presentation from some other thing and do it. So it's usually pretty low-key at this point because we're still a handful of members. But then there's the work on trying to grow that as well. So we've just moved locations to something I'm hoping is going to be more popular for people in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. It's going to be more on the Dallas side than the Fort Worth side. Ah, right. So people are going to show up. That's the hope we moved. We had the first one, so I'm hoping that can do it. And like this one, it was just like, kind of. Then it's just like, okay, what can I do that can demo it? So this one coming up at the beginning of July is going to be Erlang on a Raspberry Pi. I've seen some stuff about it. I noticed
1: that, and I thought that is so cool.
2: (laughs) And I figured, hey, it's it's Elixir as well, so we'll show Elixir for anybody who's interested in Elixir because I know there was a little Elixir group out there, but it kind of died off never gained enough traction, so I'm hoping to bring in some of those people. But then I realized there's also LFE, which is pretty mature, so I can demo LFE. So I reached out to Duncan McGregor and Robert Verding about if they'd seen any good demos with LFE or any LFE stuff that they've seen. And Duncan McGregor just sent me out something today, and he just put it on a GitHub repo, which looks pretty freaking awesome, that he just threw together. It's a like 10,000 things demo, and so it's like spawning off 10,000. You can spawn off like 10,000 processes, and it'll use like a D3JS process in the browser to show relationships between those processes and something. So it's one of those, it's just kind of like seeing what's out there. What can I do? Is it something where I just spawn up a whole bunch of dumb processes, that nothing else, and say, as I mentioned, these are 200 or 500 byte processes? That's so insane. Got a, so if I've got a Raspberry Pi, like, can we keep ramping it up and I just do a basic <laughs> spawn and say, here's 200,000, here's half a million, here's a million. Like, slowly keep ramping up that process and, like, see where it falls over that in so front of cool, everybody right? and say, does anybody else have something they do and want to see if it falls over and kind of just do a live? So it's, it's usually informal like that and just kind of like, I've got a question and it's usually, how does this work? There's been a couple where I've write, written some other programs for it, specifically as yes, tutorials, but that was more... Continuing series, and so I was able to kind of continually evolve that as it went on.
1: that is very cool man and well, the last question I would like to ask is um is there any resources you'd recommend for people looking into getting trying to get into functional programming closure um you know erlang because I know that one of the one of the books that you recommend and I've just bought is actually the structure and interpretation of computer programs that's been heavily influential
2: yeah that one's a that one's a deep book, and a lot of people can take multiple passes to try and get through it and they do have a, they do have print copies, but you can also go to MIT and find site, and I can find the show note and put it in for you and send it That'll to you be for awesome, the show yes. notes. But they have it online for free. You can the other one that was there were a couple. Joy of Closure I found really really great for getting into that, and Chaz Emmerich's book, the O'Reilly Closure book, which I think is closure programming versus programming closure, uh, was really good, <laughs> uh, and. One of the good things about that book by Chaz Emmerich and others, Christoph Grand and my mind's going blank on the third author, but they showed the game of life and they essentially translated it from how you think of it in more of an OO Java imperative style into something more closure-y and then a completely different, more pure functional way. Like a a complete functional way. So it kinda shows some guides on that. So that was a really good book for Closure. So Joy of Closure and the Chaz Emmerich, Christoph Grand, O'Reilly closure closure book was good. I've heard good things about Karen's Meyers uh, Living Closure that just came out. Uh for Erling, the ones there's Learn You Some Erling for Great Good, which is pretty good and I enjoyed. Then there was Erling and OTP in action, which is a great book to keep you yep. OTP and kind of get you understanding and thinking in the OTP way. And then Francesco Cesarini and Steve Vanosky have one in O'Reilly coming out, early release. They're working on it still, but it's Designing for Scalability with Erling and OTP. And that one is great in the sense that it shows you all the things you wouldn't necessarily think about when you're trying to do this, and everything that OTP gives you, and the way of thinking about concurrent processes and distributed communication between processes and things like that where what happens as I mentioned what happens if this message doesn't get there or this dies or the network gets up but I think it died because I can't get to the get the network communications down and all that kind of stuff so that's a good resource um there was I believe Brian Merrick's had a lean pub which is functional programming for the OO developer something like Ooh. that
1: that seems like a really interesting read.
2: Yeah, so it's leanpub slash fp-oo, and it's the exact title is yeah, functional programming for the object-oriented programmer, and that one's a good one. The other ones that are kind of interesting is original Braithwaite has a Ruby and a JavaScript ones that kind of go into OO, which is like Kestrel's quirky Birds and. Something else, I am want it blank on the full name, and then CoffeeScript Ristretto or JavaScript j uh, So for some CoffeeScript and Ruby and stuff, the Focus's Functional JavaScript is awesome as well. That, so that if, is an
1: awesome read. I, I really enjoyed that one.
2: Yeah, so if you're in JavaScript and you want to kind of get an idea of functional programming and kind of see where you can take it in just your day job and how you can take advantage of some nice things in JavaScript, that one's an awesome one, and the other one is... Essentially, he went through, and it's a, it's all Ruby, and he went through and did two parts. It was one of those, you build up a Turing machine in Ruby and the first yes. half of the book, and then the second half of the book was all functional programming and you're essentially starting from the Lambda Calculus. So he oh, essentially I- built up Turing... Took it from the Turing side with finite state machines and built you into a Turing machine. And then it went through and said, okay, we're part two is we're going to go and restop, start from scratch, forget everything we knew, and we're gonna start it from the lambda calculus and go straight from the lambda calculus and build up programs and build up counting and everything from the lambda calculus. And then at the end it was and you can see that. All of these are equivalent. Lambda calculus and Turing machines are equivalent, and they're both they both work the same way. And it's two different ways of coming up with the same problem.
1: That is awesome. Uh, I'm, I'm definitely gonna have to read that book.
2: I, I'm gonna have to find it. I'm browsing the Pride Public <laughs> site now, but I'm not. The ty- the cover is not jumping out with me. And then the other ones that are good just to give you a taste in the tease. And again, programming Elixir was good if you're wanting to look at the Elixir side and you're more from the Ruby side. But the other one that, there's a couple of others by Bruce Tate, which is the seven languages in seven weeks and the seven more languages in seven weeks. And if you're just kind of wanting to get a breadth of languages, those give you a good kind of hint because you, it shows some Erlang, some Closure, some Haskell, and then the second one gets into like Elm and some of these other... Idris and some and of these I other think so as well, I think, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So there's a there's a number of good books out there. It just depends on what kind of stuff you're looking for and how practical. But if you're if you're doing web development right now and you're kind of getting into this, focuses is a pretty easy one to start with and kind of see how it can fit in with everything you're doing now. But all those others I mentioned are really good resources. And I'll try and get some references. Thank you so much,
1: man. Yeah. To that uh, other one, I can't re-
2: find right now. I can't think of the name, but yeah, that's I'll, get good, to you I'll, I'll have.
1: I'm gonna rummage through after this podcast to try and find that because that sounds really interesting. And and thank you very much again for coming on the show, Stephen. Well, Proctor, sorry. The audience, it's been another episode of Three Devs and a Maybe. And, uh, yeah, we'll be back with you next
0: week for another fun episode. Bye. You've been listening to Three Devs and a Maybe. You can contact us at contact at three devs and a maybe dot com or follow us on Twitter at the number three devs and a maybe.